This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening, you are with Lee Chui Lin and Sharad Kutin. Tonight, how can the government communicate better with the public and especially with younger Malaysians? This comes as an assemblyman has suggested using influencers to reach those younger citizens. But we also want to explore how the government could do better in its communications. So it's a simple question. Let us know, do you think the government is communicating well with you at the moment? And what or who would be your most trusted source of information? That number to call is 7733-2900. Tweet us at BFM Radio and send us a voice note or WhatsApp at our U-Mobile number 018-789-8899. This is Inside Story. It is 6.08. So, um, this comes actually from Kota Damansara Adun, Muhammad Izwan Ahmad Kasim, who suggested yesterday the use of influencers in publicising government programmes, especially among the younger generation. He said this while intervening in the debate on the motion of thanks for the royal address by Bukit Gasing Adun Rajiv Rishikaran, uh, which took place yet, uh, which happened in Shah Alam. So uh, he essentially said that the idea of the younger generation receiving any state government inf- information would be more effective through influences and that the State Executive Council cannot solely conduct exhibitions and media briefings to disseminate information about what the government has implemented for the benefit of people. Yeah, I think at, <coughs> sorry, I think at this point, everybody's struggling with um, communicating uh, to their target audience, especially because there's, there's a barrage, I mean, a, a literal avalanche of information coming at any one person at any one time. Right. And so, so I mean, those, you know, those SMSs from government, I mean, who reads that? I never read them. I'm those SMSs. Uh, because, you know, I have to decide for myself what is going to be important or not. And I kind of assume maybe uh, wrongly that it's not important information, you know. So I, I think that this is a struggle for everybody. And it's true of media organizations, it's true of government. The question is, have they missed out on some low-hanging fruit, which uh, today I think includes the the use of influences. So I, I'm kind of, I'm intrigued by this because of a number of things. So if we break it down, right, uh, on the subject of government communication, I think this is interesting because what do we want from the government? I think that there are a fair amount of uh, people who are perhaps older, um, perhaps used to more traditional types of comms from um, the from people in power, um, who may not actually want the more sort of informal, hey guys, you know, let me tell you about something kind of videos that perhaps are more popular um, among people who expect that on, say, TikTok or, or Instagram or wh- whatever it may be. They may, in fact, want the more traditional, um, here is something kind of memo approach that is taken. So I think with communication and from the government, the tone is kind of an interesting one. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, if you look at the number of followers that official accounts from ministries tend to have versus the followings of large influencers, I think the problem becomes quite apparent because I may follow a government account if... I think that what they're going to have to say to me is deeply relevant. So if I were a doctor, I would likely follow the Ministry of Health. For example, if I were a health journalist, I might do the same. But as a general member of the audience, you I think what you want from an account you follow is a mixture of things that are Important, yes, um, but also that you wanted to know, that are interesting, that peak your peak something. Um And I don't think that's what government accounts are famous for. I don't think that that's what they're known for. Whereas influencers are a little more skilled in this game of reaching out to people. Yeah, I think one of the problems I have in being sympathetic to the general population when it comes to relating to any kind of source of information is because I'm a journalist, I've had to be a glutton of, for information I've, and I've had to take it from many sources. So I, I'm atypical. I think we are atypical yeah. when it comes to uh, the way in which we uh, think about uh, those sources, including government. I, 
I am always shocked by the level of indifference that greets me when I talk about government or a government scheme uh, from just friends and you know neighbors or whatever it is. They, a lot of people just don't know, don't care, and it only becomes important in a crisis moment, right? It only becomes important um, when that information is going to change your choices or, or you feel that you're stuck and then you suddenly discover that, oh, actually the government had this scheme or that was open and these are options that you had. So um, I think people approach that information also very differently, not just the source. They they want information only when it's relevant. Unfortunately, sometimes I think constraints that happen in a crisis mean that you're not going to get the best information. So let us know, uh, do you think the government is communicating well with you at the moment? Do you feel like you understand, you know, basically what's happening or, or that you understand what it is that they've achieved, what they're trying to do? And what or who is your most trusted source of information? That number to call, double seven double three two nine hundred. send a voice note or WhatsApp, 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. After this, we'll be speaking with Cheska Tatiana. Performance Management Consultant with Bamandu Associates. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Benchmark for Managers, BFM 89.9. It is 6.15 and you are listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We're talking today about government communication and asking you whether you feel the government is communicating well with you at the moment. Do you know what's happening? Do you know what they're doing? Um, and what or who is your most trusted source of information. Where do you go for that? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Speaking with us now, we have Cheska Tatiana, Performance Management Consultant with Pemandu Associates and also Head of Social Media for Project Girls for Girls Malaysia. Cheska, thanks for speaking with us today. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Charlotte. Super happy to be here with you guys. So firstly, um, how would you assess the communication from the government in the last year, especially in terms of whether it's had an impact with the public? In terms of having an impact, I do believe that, well, that's happened. Um, but what you can observe over the last year is that communication from the government, especially in terms of your programs, in terms of updates, tends to be a little bit more sporadic. So if you look at the papers, if you're diligent in reading the newspaper or if you're diligent in keeping yourself updated with the e-newspapers, then you will find a relative, um, a relatively regular level of information out there. But if you are someone who doesn't regularly read the papers, for instance, you don't necessarily get a lot of information cohesively. So let's get more specific. What do you think are the gaps that exist when it comes to publicizing government programs to younger people? Okay. So I have to preface my answer first with the fact that I don't think these gaps are unique to the younger generation. Across each generation, as the two of you mentioned earlier, there is a gap in information that will exist. So I'm just going to start with why it's become increasingly challenging or why it's become more fragmented, especially over the last year. This isn't a trend that's specific to the last 12 months, but what we have to acknowledge is the fact that in the last five years, there's been a proliferation in the number of government websites and online platforms which have been established. I think as at 2021, we had around 700 government websites up and this was a conscious decision as part of our digitalization efforts nationally. But where that poses a challenge is that there are far too many websites to keep track with. It's different if you're a person who's keeping tabs on a specific sector for research. But if you're part of the general public, you'll find that information is often scattered across different sites and microsites. So in specific to why it's been challenging for information to keep, to reach them. We live in an era where content looks for readers and how the majority of the government advertises its programs, it's still traditional in a sense where it is. it still expects the reader to seek. But we really move past the era of having centralized ads on one major government portal or having or being able to refer to the same newspaper across most of the country. With the number of websites and platforms and microsites that exist, 
it simply becomes overwhelming to the average person. And what happens when most people, to most people when they're overwhelmed is that they tend to shut down or disengage. So do you think it's actually a matter of information not reaching them or information, you know, getting to where it's intended to go, but it's not persuasive? I think it's a little bit of both. So if we're looking at where this information is going, I think, Lynn, you raised a point earlier about how this information is more often than not on official government websites or, sorry, official government accounts where the following isn't as high as what most influencers have on their platforms. So there's first the issue with reach. And we live in an era where there's far too many mediums for you to um, absorb information or seek knowledge from. So I mentioned earlier, you have your newspapers, you have your online portals, you have the radio, you have blogs, you have government websites. And one, information isn't reaching the audience. And second, when it comes to how the government communicates its programs, it's very much still traditional. So if there is a program on how to improve a specific skill, for example, how do you improve how do you improve your communication skills? They often market it as just that. Okay. So for example, there's a government program, um, come attend it, improve your communication skills. But right now, when you look at most of the companies, most of the foreign governments that are putting information out there, what they do is they play on the emotions, on the hopes of the people that they're trying to reach out to. For example, um, if, in my, if on my platform in the NGO, we have a talk for impact and income coming up. Instead of just saying we have this webinar coming up, what we want to do is we tap into the psyche of our followers. So how we market it is then if you ever had dreams of starting your own business, if you've ever had dreams of starting something in your own community where you can scale it, this is the perfect platform or the perfect course for you to take to embellish yourself with the skills that you need, whether you're attempting to go for your dreams today or whether you're planning to do it five years down the road. So to answer your question, one, it is both. Um, the information isn't reaching the people as it needs to. And second, it's simply not persuasive the way it's put out there. I mean, so it's well, on one hand, it's really good that, you know, people in government are talking about this and talking about the need for better communication. So we have Kota Damansara MP, Mohammed um, Iswan Mohammed Kasim, suggesting that influencers publish, uh, to publicize government pr uh, programs among the younger generation. Uh, can you help us understand why this could be appealing to younger people, the use of influencers? So as I mentioned earlier, we live in an era where the content looks for the readers and how that looks in action is integrating the information you want to advertise into mediums of communication, which is a normal part of a person's life. So unless you work in a corporation or you need to apply for a specific form or license, going to government websites or accounts as an, an avenue for information simply isn't organic. It's not something we naturally do. But what we do have right now are people who specialize in bringing content, bringing information to people in a way that appeals to them. And that is the art of influencing that good influencers have. Whether they have large followings or they're micro-influencers, they have the ability to take bare information, bullet points, and turn it into a skit, turn it into an ad, or make it relatable to the people that are following them. So, in fact, if, if I can just touch on something, influences are now viewed as critical to the dissemination of information to the public. And even when we are working in government projects, it's usually listed as a major opportunity and risk when it comes to the implementation of these projects. So if we just look at um, the largest health crisis that we had in the past decade, COVID-19, what Norway did was it listed influencers as critical personnel. It was the only country around the globe to do so, and their reach was extensive. 
And what they do is really just prepare information on a poster, send it out with guidelines to their pool of 1,500 influencers at that point. And the goal of it was not just to educate, but to minimize the risk of misinformation. So us using influencers to disseminate government program information won't be unique or novel, but it would be a brave step forward in embracing the way of life as it is today. And what we potentially have the power to do right now and why it would be so impactful if we utilize influencers is that they have an ability to harness the content in a way that cuts through traditional subgroups. So what you're doing is you're giving them the content for your program. You're giving them the content for your initiative. And the heavy legwork is being done by these influencers. So how to make it relatable to your audience? How do you cut through certain barriers of, for example, um, demo class demographic or uh, location demographic? That heavy lifting is done by influencers. And I think that is why it would be appealing if we're talking about reaching to the youth, but also the masses. So what needs to be considered in aligning government initiatives to work um, alongside influencers and in a broader sense, social media as a whole? And I think this is maybe an acknowledgement of the fact that the internet can be, you know, uh, maybe a more playful or a wilder space than what government official communication typically looks like. I think the beauty of influencers and what the social media era has brought is, is that you can find an influencer for almost any demographic. You can find influencers that are slightly more serious, who people who regard themselves as more interested in facts, in having information as it is straightforward. Like there are influencers that cater to that demographic. There are also influences that cater to the more playful side of the youth. And I think in terms of the government utilizing influences moving forward, what needs to be understood and considered first is the demographic that you're reaching out to. And more important than the urban and rural divide when it comes to social media is actually the language that your audience speaks in. Uh, and their leanings, whether they're more conservative or liberal, for instance. And once you've mapped out what the demographics are, um, I think I assure you just from experience, you can find an influencer for each of your target demographics. Is it possible that government might be toxic for an influencer? I mean, to be to have that association? <laughs> um, I have to ask, toxic how? Well, because, you, you know, because you're trapped, once you're promoting a government's position on anything, they will associate you with a, a range of other initiatives or values that are attached to that government. So I think that's, that's definitely a fair risk, but that's where I suppose the due diligence on the influencer side comes in as well. I think there are influencers who have been very successful in advertising what the government is doing without being painted as a supporter of the government in specific and how you avoid um, this situation where they might be tagged to a specific party or tagged to a, to the current government is uh, you need to how do you say this you need to tailor the program that you're intending to advertise to the influencer itself for example, if you are intending to uh, promote a program for uh, working mothers, uh, sorry, to mothers who want to return to the workforce, then reach out to influencers who regularly speak about this, who regularly talk about um, their experience as a mother who left the workforce and who intends to come back, or a woman who went abroad um, to work and then wants to come back home. That way you avoid this association with a specific political party because then people chalk it up to just, oh, okay, it makes sense that they're speaking about this. It's not because they're um, a supporter of a specific party or a specific government, but it just makes sense. We've got a couple of minutes left with you. As someone who mentors young people, what kind of messaging do you use to help them understand or relate to a program? 
So it goes back to what I said earlier about tapping into what their passions are. So our program is based on trying to get more women, more girls into positions of leadership. And how we try to connect with them is tapping into asking them basic questions like, um, have you ever sat in a classroom, seen someone present and want that to be you? Or have you ever sat in a meeting room and felt like you have two or three great ideas to offer um, to the table, but you simply can't because you don't have the bravery to do that because you don't have the confidence or you feel like you don't have the support to do that. So as someone who mentors young people um, and who has kind of been reaching out to the youth from the time I was one of them myself, the best thing you can really do is to find out what makes your audience tick. It's not good enough to just go and advertise your program as noble as it is, um, as it is. So you can't just go out there and say, here's a course on reading better. Here's a course on speaking better. Here's a course on getting better at um, business financials. You need to tap into what is the desire behind this program. Why would a person want to join it in the first place? Cheska, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Charit. That was Cheska Tatiana, Performance Management Consultant with Pomandu Associates and the Head of Social Media for Project Girls for Girls Malaysia. Keep those thoughts coming. We're asking whether you think the government is communicating well with you at the moment and what or who is your most trusted source of information. Call us, send us a voice note or WhatsApp and tweet us at BFM Radio. Being first matters. BFM 89.9 it is 6.38 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We're talking today about government communication um, and we're just asking because there was a suggestion from the Kota Damansara Adun for influencers to be utilised in terms of publicising government programmes, especially towards younger people. But in general, there has been, I would say broadly, criticism about whether the government is doing well in terms of how it communicates with people. So we're asking you whether you think the government is communicating well with you at the moment. Do you have a handle on how to reach out to them? Do you have a handle on what they are doing, what they've achieved? And also, what or who is your most trusted source of information? Is it influences? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine and tweet us at BFM Radio. We have a voice note from the magnificently named Shaz Picious. Hi BFM. So I'm a social media manager here in a copper company here in Kuala Lumpur. And uh, to the topic this evening, right, there's a, there's a few different uh, segments to it that we can actually talk about. But first, I want to talk about the social media algorithm right now. So just now, um, there was a topic about, you know, being a follower of a page and, you know, getting the information from the page. But nowadays, with the social algorithm, it's no longer about you know, being a follower of a page because uh, not necessarily if you follow page A and you would actually get the information from a page A because it really depends on your engagement to the page because if you do not engage with the page, you won't see it on your FYP or on your feed. So the question right now is what kind of content can the government produce to be in the FYP or the feed of any user because if the content gets engaged highly then what happens is the content will go far the propagation of the content will go really far that even if you are not a follower you can actually get the content on your feed and uh, the second thing i'd like to talk about today is um you know government agencies right now they have uh, i'm not sure if anyone have ever heard of Marquis before today but Marcus is on TikTok and they have really good content that goes onto a lot of people's FYP and their feed. And even KPDN have been uh, coming out with really good content that goes viral. So do we still need influencers to help us propagate the information that the government require? Or can we just create really good content 
formulations. Shaz, thank you for that. I, I think um, you raised so many interesting points. Uh, let's start maybe with the second one before we talk about the algorithm, which I think is its own thing. Um, if we look at the issue of do we use influencers or do we invest internally in hiring people who are as good as at telling stories as influencers and therefore are able to create good internal content? I think it's an interesting one um, and also a question of how people, maybe the government in particular, view investing in talent to do this specific thing. Yeah, the investment in talent uh, in a division that's always been there, right? So information has been part Coms of government. has always been there, of It's course. always been there, right? Yeah. But, you know, I think over the years, government has outsourced uh, some types of comms to people to organizations perhaps uh, seen as more dynamic and so on and so forth, right? The internal comms don't necessarily require, or haven't at least to this point, required creativity. It was always the solid, the conservative, the just put it out, basic information that's going out to, you know, to all in sundry, whether it's internal to the department or it's kind of to the public. I don't think there has been any incentive within government to, and also a way of measuring uh, you know, the success of communications. Where, whereas if you're in, in a corporation, comms is so important because it's tied to your profit margin, your bottom line, you know, how many people are buying your things and, you know, and so on, how many people sign up. Government's never had that incentive. So something has to change, right, I think, in the way in which a government sees itself and its own KPIs yeah. in order for them to say, wow, hey, we need storytellers in, you know, in the department to communicate more effectively. The other thing is, um, you are right, in that the the notion of following a page and following the official account is, yeah, uh, maybe not that relevant anymore because I, I only brought it up because when we talk about KPIs, that's still something people look at. That's still a metric people care about. How many followers do you have? How many, you know, um, and, and did that increase? Did it not? But the the point about even if you follow, you might not be seeing is very relevant. And therefore, if we free ourselves from that a little bit and start to consider instead what it would look like to create content that has the ability to travel, regardless of whether or not people are in fact following you, then yes, um, I, I don't know actually what the... I don't know how the government necessarily thinks about it when they operate on social media. Yeah, so someone like Shaz, you know, I mean, what Shaz, you, what you do is you point out to the back end that a lot of us don't understand about the way in which these systems and platforms work to their own advantage. And we're saying we want to kind of leverage that platform, its algorithms or whatever, for our advantage. And maybe it doesn't always converge, right? So, you know, I think the people who are designing government comms today have to be super conscious of the back end of these platforms, understand its logic, and not be become slaves to it or become victims of it, as it were. Because you think, oh, well, we'll just put it on the, one of the biggest platforms and that will sell our, our you know, our message. And might not. So Fadzli says, I have this image of TikTokers explaining government initiatives through song and dance. Unfortunately, I don't take such things seriously. But that's just me. Considering how messy the government is at communicating with so many clarifications needed after announcements, they need all the help they can get. I prefer traditional news media and cross-checking different outlets and sources. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think the reality is that we all are very different in the way we consume information. But there are things to um, to indicate that, in fact, something like TikTok can be a powerful platform for pushing out messages. If you think of, of you know, the success that the Kada MB had in pushing out his message and how how often, you know, his little TikTok messages went viral with the youth, especially of Kada. Then you think, well, okay, you know, there is some. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't kind of dismiss any platform today just because it does appeal to somebody. And the fact that yeah. they, they're big means they must have some level of success. Right? Yes, which Fazli is acknowledging, right, that it might not be for him. And and I think um, in thinking about how the government can kind of spread their messages far and wide, it is important to remember exactly that, that they are not reaching out to just us, even though our question today is, do you think they're communicating well with you? But in fact, 
I think, you know, any good communication strategy needs to consider all the different audience members and, you know, how you're reaching them. Keep those thoughts coming. Do you think the government is communicating well at the moment? And what or who is your most trusted source of information? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Bringing fresh meaning. BFM 89.9. It's 6.48 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We are talking today about government communication and asking you, do you think the government is communicating well at the moment? And what or who is your most trusted source of information? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. So I wanted to get to these two points which, which really focus on misinformation. Arvin says, if the government could turn RTM into a BBC or ABC, for example, in Australia, with true editorial independence, funded by a constitutional mandate as a basic right, reporting to parliament and governed by a media council, perhaps this would convince the citizenry of truth. Because right now, there is no longer a source of absolute truth, and we have Trump to thank for that. KW, meanwhile, says influences aren't going to change anything. Young people, or as a matter of fact, Malaysians, love conspiracy. Just make your message a conspiracy one and the people will believe it. Okay, so KW, I I understand the cynicism and it's hard not to fall into the trap of thinking that uh, Malaysians love conspiracy. Conspiracy is loved by everybody. Uh, Yes, I was going to say people love conspiracy. (laughs) Yeah, and because what is conspiracy? Conspiracy is is an explanation for something, right? And it's an easy explanation. So you can say, uh, you know, this ethnic group uh, is, you know, controls the world economy. That's a conspiracy. Um, Yes, I I agree with you, but I think that that explanation maybe misses one part of what makes a conspiracy very appealing, which is the promise that you're on the inside. And I think that that kind of goes a long way because it's, hey, not only is this a simple kind of theory to explain why this thing has been plaguing you, but on top of that, it's something that the masses don't realise, but you've realised. And, okay. and so I think there is that appeal as well. Okay, so you're in on the conspiracy. You're in on the truth, yeah. On the truth. Well, okay, so when coming back to Arvind then and uh, the question of whether RTM, if it re- reconstructs itself, you know, if it becomes like, uh, you know, a, a media organisation, a public broadcaster with a charter, will actually start to be a ally of the government in trying to deal with what it might feel is either a lack of information or worse still a distorted information. So the government comms isn't just about, you know, what you can get from government, this is what they're giving you, or if you apply, you can get this and such. It's often also about dealing with those who attack the government, who say or who have uh, reframed what government does and says, well, okay, this is a, you know, this is the way to look at uh, what government is doing. It's undermining our community. And then the government wants to say, well, you know, we need to find a way to address that misinformation and reframe it back to what we think is the right thing, then you need credibility. And I think that's what Arvind is talking about. Uh, Credibility being kind of the anchor of uh, persuading people. Yes. I don't think that's the only thing. Um, So I I was thinking about how credibility is key. Um, but is is the BBC, for example, and I think the BBC actually um, are on shakier ground these days than they were in the past. And <laughs> Absolutely. That's putting it kind of mildly. Um, but I understand why they're still held up as the bastion of, of this form of um, media, because for a very long time they were. So um, I think something like the BBC is a mixture of credibility widespread availability and quality and expectation of quality. And I think that that's an important aspect too, because you can be very credible, but if you're not reporting the news in a way, or or not just the news, but if you're not uh, conveying information or, or putting things together in a way that people want to consume, then even if you're credible, I might not go to you. Other people are credible too. So I think that there is this question of quality, how we fund quality. Um, Actually, it goes back to the earlier point about investment in people also. Um, The BBC, I'm thinking about something like the licensing fee that that's paid and that gets funneled back into eventually into funding the BBC and how that kind of structure isn't something that we have here. So it's, it's a lot of different things about why, why an RTM is not a BBC. 
Yeah, it's true. Uh, and I think also what the problem for RTM always was, they they had an older and I think slightly discredited notion of how to deliver, how to perform authority and credibility, right? Yeah. And it was always the kind of seriousness. You are a serious uh, newscaster. You spoke with a particular voice. It, it tend, the register tended to be low. You know, there was all these things that made up the template for authority and credibility. Um, I think the Americans play it slightly differently, which is not so much that voice, but it became like the personality. So you, you know, you kind of like, you know, you, I don't know, listen to 60 Minutes or something like and you think, this is a person I can trust. And I think the influencers of today are much more like that. They're about people connecting to that individual and saying, I trust you. And so when you do your homework or you present something, I'm likely to believe you because I trust you. And it's not the institution anymore. You know, people rarely feel warm thoughts about institutions, whether it's the BBC or RTM or ABC, whatever it may be. Or BFM. Or BFM, yeah. right? So, but they might believe the people in it, right? They might believe the individuals who are broadcasters, who whose voices they connect with. So we're talking about the government actually more broadly, um, and we'd like to hear from you. Do you think the, gov- the government is communicating well? Is it doing that job well of uh, either allowing you to reach out to them or for that matter, conveying to you what it is that they are doing uh, and what or who is your most trusted source of information? Could it be influencers? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. You can send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and of course, tweet us at BFM Radio. Bruce Freddie Morrissey, BFM 89.9. It is 7.08 and this is Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We have been talking about government communication for actually any number of reasons. I think it's kind of been an acknowledged issue, but also because the Kota Damansar Adun, Muhammad Izwan Ahmad Kasim, has suggested the use of influencers in publicising government programmes, especially among younger folks. And I think this has us asking that dual question. How do you think the government is doing when it comes to communication? And what or who is actually actually your most trusted source of information. Where do influencers rank in that? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Um, we have some voice notes actually. Let's start with this run from uh, Zibing. I personally think that the government can do a lot better in communication. My main news source is from uh, Malaysia Kini and from BFM News. Um, and I feel like my impression is that the government is currently being very reactive whenever there's any issues or drama that are drummed up by the opposition or when, you know, the opposition does something bad or the politicians do something newsworthy, then our government reacts to it, right? So, but what what is our government or the different ministries actually doing proactively? What are they doing month to month? I think even that kind of basic information, if released, can be very useful for the people. If it could be like a monthly report card or quarterly report card. What did each ministry actually do each month, each quarter? What did they actually, you know, how much did they spend? What did they spend on? It doesn't have to be detailed, but at least enough to let us know what the government is working on. I'd like to believe that this unity government is actually doing something but maybe they're just not very good at communicating it. But right now, it seems that this unity government is only good at responding to issues and not being proactive about doing things that they promised they would do. I also think that the communications ministry should actually start communicating what the government is doing um, and also keeping the communication aligned. Right? Because this unity government doesn't seem very united when one ministry or one minister or one government politician says something and then another politician in the same government disagrees with them or argues with them. This just shows how not united this unity government is. It would be nice for them to actually have some form of communication strategy among each other before things get out to the public. It reflects very poorly on the government. Zimeng, thank you so much for that. Um, I, okay, 
I'm wondering whether we need to make a distinction between uh, ministries and individual politicians. Because I, I think the tricky thing here is, I agree with you that a larger comm strategy, a stronger comm strategy, maybe more um, kind of cooperation between ministries, all of that, absolutely, you're right, is important. But when I think about the statements that get out, go viral, that people latch onto and that eventually are seen as exactly that thing about disunity that you're talking about. I feel like they more often than not come from ministers or all from, you know, kind of members, well, ministers are members of the cabinet, individuals, not so much, um, you know, not so much the ministry communication. Yeah, I think, Ziming, the the problem seems to be is that, yeah, the term that we've given this coalition of coalitions is the unity government. I mean, and so the unity is there in so far as they want to keep this government, its structure, its leaders in power and, you know, fulfilling whatever agenda they have. But unity, so this is it, right? I think philosophically, do we want them all to uh, always sing the same tune, right? And that could only happen if there's a real coherence or there is a kind of a, a whip that's cracked and making sure that nobody speaks out of turn, that all of them get the, the briefing and that they all keep to the standard line and they don't deviate. Now, that can happen in some countries where parties are very strong or the government's very strong and the, you know, often we call them authoritarian. But in a kind of democratic situation, is that, uh, is that enough? Is that kind of, uh, is that desirable, I think is what I'm looking for. Uh, I'm not quite sure, you know, Ziming. I mean, because you, you're absolutely right. Sometimes it's like you read the papers and it's like the parties from the same coalition of coalitions it always seems like Amno Youth is attacking DAP and, mm -hmm. and vice versa and all that. And it just becomes the same thing. They don't even need the opposition. They internally provide the opposition. So uh, we also have, let's see, another voice note. This is TIDJ. So I completely understand where some of the listeners are coming from about restructuring RTM into something similar to the BBC. But one needs to consider that the BBC has always been credible, has remained credible in the eye of the British citizens. Uh, RTM, however, has had a lot of reputational damage. No one trusts R RTM, not for maybe a decade or maybe even two decades. So um, there is a saying, and I'm not too sure if it was a Chinese proverb or it was an English adage, but um, something, it goes something along like it takes, I'm just going to paraphrase it. So it takes forever to build up reputation, but a moment to destroy it, implying that once uh, the reputation is damaged, it, it, it's not likely for it to, you know, to be repaired. TIDJ, thank you for that. Um, I also want to say that TIDJ added on saying, I myself do not have one source of truth. I read from the main media houses like the Star or um, the New Straits Times, but I also do listen to arguments by influencers, numerous ones. I am a millennial, an elder one at that, and I'm not like the younger generation who likely do listen to them, nor am I from the age group that only believes in information disseminated, disseminated by reputable media houses, um, whom I often have questions about their credibility now. Yeah, yeah, DJ, I, you know, I, I get what you're saying about, you know, reputations built and destroyed and how difficult it's to come back. I don't think it's impossible for RTM, but I think the, the point would be that you have to be a genuine effort. I mean, like if you want RTM to be uh, credible, then you have to really take stock of what's there rather than just do the, the surface rebranding. I think that's not going to work. I mean, just giving a new tagline uh, is going to be insufficient. You have to really convince people that RTM is there to serve the public, not the government of the day, and that there are structures and resources to deliver that. And then slowly by slowly, and you know, it's, it's, if a certain program in RTM suddenly becomes, you know, goes viral and everybody loves it, then maybe people say, hey, well, maybe there's something in RTM. And I, I do believe there are one or two good programs on RTM. It's just that, yeah, they, they, they suffer the baggage of all this, um, the disrepute of being just slavish to government.
We've also got a point raised by Shasha who says there are one too many government websites. I had a complaint to lodge on the GoKL City bus early this week. I was asked to lodge the aduan on DBKL's website uh, as well as the System Pengurusan Aduan Awam, Motax website and SPAD. I've done the first three but I've yet to lodge the report on the last. Um, and I think that, and also to the minister, and I think that this is... This is a slightly separate thing, but it's why throughout the show I've tried to um, kind of frame communication in a way where it's not one-sided, right? Because it's also important for you to be able to contact the government as and when you need. And um, this is such an easy point of contact. I think that this one has to do with structural issues uh, and legacy issues, but it also has to do with, I feel often, that when you are very deep in bureaucracy, that you don't always recognize when it doesn't actually make sense to others. Yeah, and I think, you know... I can because you th- know which sites to go to, you know, <laughs> you know all four sites, so it, it may not be clear that it's not clear to the wider public. And it probably don't need all those four sites. So the thing, the one, one thing that happens with like this push for digitization is that everybody gets the same memo. Okay, and so everybody sets up a website rather than having somebody looking from on high and saying, oh, this doesn't even make sense. And so maybe we've had too many and there's a need for rationalization. There needs to be somebody who says, actually, this is where all the duplication happened. And I think Malaysia, we are very famous for duplication. So there's a lot of Jawatankwasa, there's a lot of agencies, too many, and so on and so forth. Isa says, one of my current assignments is to get my 1,700 colleagues to sign up on Padu. After two weeks, the sign-up rate is just 1%. It looks like we're generally still not as convinced about the usefulness of the system or security of our info as our big bosses are. This, I think, returns to... Um, one of the big kind of communication pushes that has happened from the government this year, right, which is that focus on PADU, on um, getting people to sign up for it. And it's interesting because in some ways, if it had worked, then um, ISA you shouldn't be finding this job as hard as, as not as hard, but you shouldn't be finding the sign-up rate as low as this, right? The work should partly have been done by the governmental campaign. Yeah, so what goes on in that campaign that didn't work, right? Um, what was it that they were trying to do? Uh, in fact, if I remember correctly, they were trying to do several things, right? One of the things was to give away this money, but the other thing was to incentivize through that giveaway people signing on. And then because there were all these difficulties, I think sometimes maybe the digitization effort is going to actually take a generation. We're going to have to educate younger people. For him, this is natural to be part of it rather than all, you know, us older folk who are some of her skeptical too lazy don't see the purpose just can't uh you know find the energy to kind of participate um i think okay a few kind of more controversial points to close off on david says i read international news related to communication in malaysia the chances of the international news getting it wrong is less this is interesting so am i reading it right david that you basically trust the international news is reporting on malaysia more than local news i mean that's how i'm understanding this yeah i think David, it does sound like you're saying that. And I would push back a little on this, well, a lot, (laughs) because I think I, because I do read, you know, South China Morning Post and Malaysia and all these other things. And they tend to write the news for uh, an audience that doesn't have insider sense or doesn't have a common uh, kind of taken for granted view of Malaysia. They they tend to be very simplistic and so on and so forth. I mean, not to blame them because they have a different target audience. I actually think that um, for international news, actually where I find it, helpful is that I will say that uh, in some instances, not all, that the standard of writing can be higher. Um, I think it has to do with with facility, with language and so on. So sometimes when I'm trying to understand a complex topic, um, I actually default to um, international news portals for the simple reason that they provide a primer that local news might not do anymore. Because you know what? We are all supposed to know it. We're all, we've all lived it. So if I need a refresher, um, if I need a refresher written so simply and well, then I may actually, yes, uh, go to international news portals. What I think they miss out on, of course, is a lot of nuance. I don't think they get that insider nuance. I don't think that they have the same level of depth. But for a primer, I think it's hard to beat actually sometimes. 
Okay, I, and I, the prime is that precisely because they they don't assume things that they exactly are, right? yes, but they can't do the kind of coverage that a local news media's will a media does because you know for an international uh, platform why would they cover Malaysia every day? They wouldn't necessarily cover Malaysia. It will always have to be things that they think a large international audience or their audience think is interesting. And so there's so much that's missed out, right? And um, so I am a little skeptical, though I must say I, I do read something like The Diplomat, because I think The Diplomat, you know, when it looks at Malaysia, often brings expert opinions and academics uh, with certain expert ex- opinions to bear on the questions that they're writing about. Next controversial topic, Shamil says, maybe the government should consider fielding easy on the eye or young MPs or adults instead. Influences in government ads or campaigns are always cringy or boring because they're doing it for money rather than passion. Shamil, I think this is, um, I, I, okay, I have issues with this. Uh, I think this is interesting partly because, you know, this is a uh, accusation that's levelled at politicians as well, that they're doing it for money rather than passion. So I think it's interesting that then we're now expecting, um, you know, politicians to be able to, transcend that um, because they're held to a higher regard than influencers. I think also that this actually is perhaps to do with how we think of influencers. It's still a grey area word, right? Some people think of it as a dirty word. They still don't want to be called it or they still um, don't have a lot of respect for people who build a career on it. I don't think all influencers are built on youth or beauty, actually. So, Shamil, I actually read you as asking or making two points, right? One was the easy on the eye thing. And what, and then I thought your your follow-up was going to be that all those people actually fronting government comps are not easy on the eye. They are, you know, old or tired, looking, or whatever it is that you might find unattractive. Uh, but then you moved into the influences who perhaps are easy on the eye, but now it's, uh, um, we one suspects that not actually themselves convinced of what they're communicating. They're just doing it for the money. So I think they're two different things. And also, Shamil, I think um, I wouldn't... Because I, I think one of these things is the prejudice we have against the young. The, the young are shallow and the, the young only want to see and uh, watch, uh, you know, uh, people who are easy on the eye. And that might not be true. I think there are a lot of young people who do find... Uh, Older people or people with substance, because of their compassion, actually very attractive. The, the, the charisma of that influencer doesn't come from the fact that they're conventionally beautiful. Lok says the lady given the runaround for wanting to make a complaint is the perfect example of our bloated civil service. And I think this is perhaps a kind of adjacent topic to the point. But this notion of bloatedness and what it means for digitalization, I think, is an interesting one. Yeah, uh, but you, like you said, it's kind of adjacent. I think the idea uh, to the topic, which was really about how government comms uh, can leverage on influencers who are already out there, kind of in the public sphere, and and do their job better, right? Uh, or you know, as some people suggested, well, you know, why do we just create better content within government uh, as and focus on that rather than do the easy thing of going to people who already built a base? But maybe we can do both. Let us know what you think. Uh, We are winding down this conversation, but do you think the government is communicating well? What or who is your most trusted source of information? You can send us a WhatsApp or tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.